that working? Yes, it is. Great. Welcome. I'll start again. Uh, Old Testament reading is the responsive reading of Psalm 62, which is found on page 806 and the back of the hymnal. Let's read this responsively. It's one of the many, many psalms that reflect on the struggles that the righteous have in the midst of a, of a wicked world. And that's certainly the lot of the righteous still today. So let's read this responsively. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from Him. How long will you assault a man? They fully intend to topple him from his lofty place. They take delight in lies. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Low-born men are but a breath, the high-born but a lie. Do not trust in extortion or take pride in stolen goods. One thing God has spoken, two things have I heard, that you, O God, are strong and that you, O Lord, are loving. You will reward each person according to what he has done. New Testament reading from Romans chapter 8. In your bulletin, verses 14 to 27. Hear this wonderful portion of, God, of God's word to Paul to the Roman church. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God." We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, 
who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So far, the reading of God's word, and he will add his blessing to it. Let's pray briefly. Our Father, we do thank you for this privilege to be with your saints, to have this opportunity to open your word and speak of this portion of it. Come by your spirit, we pray, who inspired the apostle to write it, the psalmist, so that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts may be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and redeemer, for the glory of Christ we pray. Amen. I think we would probably all agree that a great deal of what we call godliness consists in prayer, praise, thanksgiving, talking to God. Charles Hodge wrote in his theology, a prayerless man or woman is by definition spiritually dead. In fact, if you think of the patriarchs, if you think of Moses, any number of them, Samuel, David, Psalms, so many of which are prayers, and the prophets, so much of their life consisted in this communion with God, this being able to speak to him after he had spoken to them, that conversation that characterizes the life of a godly person. Supremely, our Lord Jesus Christ, his only connection with God in his human nature was just like us, through prayer. And so we see him so often resorting to be by himself, to pray, continuing all night in prayer before he chose the disciples. Maybe he was saying, do I have to have this one? You mean, actually, I'm going to have a taxpayer along with John and James who want to bring uh, uh, thunder and lightning down on the unbelievers? Oh, he had to settle himself, and he needed that communion with his father. So I think a good metaphor, and the Bible is filled with metaphors and analogies to teach us about God, because otherwise we could not know him, is breathing. We do this without thinking, don't we? Unless we have trouble breathing. If you have pulmonary problems, then you think about breathing. But you take that breath in. To me, that's like receiving all the benefits that God gives us every second of our life. Every moment we are receiving mercy from him. We take it in. What we can see, what we can hear, what we're privileged to do, that our bodies permit us to do. And then we exhale. And that's necessary for the completion of the breath. It's necessary for the way 
Oxygen is produced, CO2 is produced, all of those things. And what should that be? That's our thanksgiving. That's our praise. That's our petition. So, if you want to go away with nothing else tonight, think of breathing as the way we ought to think about communion with God, taking in his benefits, his providences that are hard or difficult. We're going to speak about that. But also exhaling in thanksgiving and praise and gratitude. It's the condemnation of the wicked in Romans 1, first and foremost, that they were not thankful. Now, it's so interesting that in Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, it's in the context of the disciples asking that Jesus would teach them to pray as John taught his disciples. I don't know about you, but that's a little surprising to me because these were, these were Jews. They'd grown up in the synagogue, in the temple. They knew what prayer was. They knew something of how to pray. If they even had a cursory understanding of the Psalms, they knew all those prayers. But John's disciples asked him to teach them to pray, and likewise, Jesus said, teach us to pray. So in that version, we get something similar to in Matthew chapter 6. And it's so striking in the Lord's Prayer, and this is not a sermon on the Lord's Prayer, just one petition, but there are six petitions in the Lord's Prayer, if we don't count the doxology at the end. Five of them have to do directly with God, hallowing his name, longing for his kingdom, wanting his will to be effected on earth exactly like it is in heaven, asking for the forgiveness of sins, and asking for help and defense against temptation. Only one has to do with physical matters in our life. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, I'm not saying that our prayers should precisely have that kind of ratio, but I think it is quite startling, as Mike said this morning, as we look into the mirror of God's Word, whether it's His law or something like this, teaching us how to pray, and we see something that says, how does your prayer life measure up to this? Um, we need to exhale a little more. We need to be giving thanks to God. I want to focus tonight on just one of these petitions, which is the second one. Thy kingdom come. How do we define God's kingdom? Well, that's a huge subject, isn't it? Um, I want to define it this way just for the sake of tonight's message. And it would be this. God's kingdom is wherever the king and his government are. Now by this, I don't just mean the fact that God is sovereign and he created all things, and therefore in his sovereignty, as God, he is over everything, and therefore is king of everything by virtue of creating it and sustaining it. But in a particular way, I want to talk about uh, the Lord Jesus, what he would be thinking here. And so while Jesus was on the earth, the kingdom was among them. When he said, my kingdom is among you, he's saying that because he the king was among them. Now, he was largely disguised during his humiliation, his time on earth. Uh, I, I've said before, I did last time, uh, that 
the major part, I think, of Christ's work on earth was his priestly work. But he was also king. And so when he said later on, the spirit of truth who is with you shall be in you, I don't think he's talking about the Holy Spirit being with them in some vague sense. I think he's talking about the Holy Spirit being with them in the human nature of Jesus himself. I will send you the Comforter. He is with you in me. In me you see him. So the king is where the king is and where his government is. Now seated in heaven... Oh, I would also point out that the reign of the kingdom of God in Jesus as man is extraordinarily exhibited in his perfect, selfless humiliation and self-control at all times. There's the reign of God. And one measurement of whether we are under this king or not is, how is our self-control? Is it controlled by the king or is it under some other rule? Of course, we have a battle for that, don't we? But now seated in heaven, Christ Jesus rules and directs all earthly things by his Spirit in and for the good of his people. So that he is in charge of all things, but particularly by his Spirit and his Word and his people. And that's our hope, as Mike at length this morning was giving us this 35,000-foot flyover on the Holy Spirit's work. Although another question we might ask then, okay, so we have this petition, thy kingdom come. How does it come? And I want to position this along the lines of a, of a metaphor, an analogy that occurs all throughout Scripture and is very, very familiar to us, particularly to the mothers here. And that is childbirth. So that the kingdom comes with multiple birth pangs in a difficult childbirth. And the evidence for that is immediately in the text that I read tonight from Romans. What does it say here? Well, for one thing it says that the creation has been subjected to futility. Not that it did it itself, but it was subjected by its creator. And that futility is evidenced everywhere around us. And we say, how did this come about? How did God's wonderful, good creation, very good creation, come into this mess? Well, we know that, don't we? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. And so, as a result of that, God cursed the earth, cursed it on account of Adam's sin. And it's so striking that along with that curse comes the promise of a redeemer. We're familiar with this, aren't we? Uh, the, the, the woman will not always be friends with the serpent. I'm going to put enmity between the woman and the serpent, between her seed and his seed. And the serpent's seed will bruise the heel of, of her seed, but her seed will crush the head of the serpent. But immediately following that promise in Genesis 3.15 is Genesis 3.16. And I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. 
So ever since, as again, all the mothers here know, is a pain in bearing children. And the the Bible speaks of this all over the place. I'm going to just touch on a few highlights to focus on how I think we should consider the life around us that seems so chaotic and so out of control often, though being ruled and governed precisely from heaven is a massive labor pains to produce well, a new heaven and a new earth. And that's what's going on in the world. And that's what this text says. We know that the whole creation, Paul says, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Ever since the fall, it's groaning. It groans with the misery of sin. It groans with the results of sin. In, in mind, in will, in affections, in relationships between men and men, women and women, men and women, in marriages and families. It's horrific. And yet it's being overseen by our good and glorious Savior. In fact, this is so serious, as the Bible takes it, that there's a whole book about the effects of this. The book of Ecclesiastes. You know, it starts out, vanity of vanity. All is vanity. What does it mean by vanity? Well, that life is ephemeral. It's transitory. It's insubstantial. It's uncontrollable. It's unpredictable. And when you see it as the phrase occurs so often in that book, as life under the sun, the physical sun, it seems futile. Where is it going? At one point, the Preacher says, there's no difference between a dog dying and a man dying. Who knows whether the spirit of the dog goes somewhere and the spirit of the man goes somewhere else. We can't tell by what we see. That's why the life of faith is so critical. But life under the sun, it has this built-in futility because of human sin. And we see that even reflected in the gracious promises that God made to his children and how he tests them to see if they can persevere And they do, of course, by his grace, in this world of seeming futility. God calls Abraham. He makes great promises to him, and his wife's barren. She can't have a child. Eventually, she does. And Isaac, his wife is barren. No child. And then she gets pregnant, and she says, I have a war going on inside me. (laughs) A difficult pregnancy with those twins, with those two boys. Life was just starting to be difficult for Rebecca. They were born, it was even worse. But in the womb, the struggle began. We think of Rachel and Jacob's great beloved. On the way to Ephrathah, which is Bethlehem, going down from Bethel, she goes into labor with her second child. It's a difficult labor. She doesn't make it. She's dying. And she names this child Ben-Omi. Ben-Omi, my son of my sorrow. Jacob's not going to let that pass, even though he loved Rachel. He names this child Ben-Hamin, son of my right hand. And so striking. It's wonderful that this child survived. 
And even that difficult pregnancy in which the mother was lost, seemingly futile for Rachel. But a king, Saul, came from this tribe of Benjamin. Started out wonderfully. What did his life end up? Not futile, but wretched. Absolutely wretched, a suicide. But then, many centuries later, another Saul is born from the tribe of Benjamin. He started off as a proud Pharisee. And then he met the risen Christ and became Paul the Apostle. Aren't we glad Rachel had that hard labor? In other words, there's a purpose in this that the saints can see that will never be known by the world. And all the struggles, or whatever they may be, that they go through. And the assaults on, on the, the saints have continued right along. One other thing we might say about Ephrathah and Bethlehem is another couple, many centuries later, made another trip to Ephrathah, Bethlehem, and the woman was also pregnant, very pregnant, but she made it to Bethlehem, barely, and she had a baby, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what kind of labor did Mary have? We don't know. It was successful. Of course it was going to be, as it was God's work. It was his promise being realized in her. But before this, there was the attempt always of Satan to destroy the promise. Pharaoh says, slaughter all of the male boys. And you midwives, when you see a boy, kill it. Well, they didn't. It wouldn't have gone over well today in the public life. They would have had great objection about the slaughter of the unborn. And when Pharaoh questioned them, oh, are the Hebrew women aren't like the Egyptian women. They don't have the labor problems that the Egyptians have. Now, whether that was true or not, we don't know. <laughs> Maybe they were in better shape because they were slaves and were having to work all the time. Who knows? But no, Pharaoh would not succeed. And so Moses is born. And the deliverer comes to liberate his people in that wonderful, typical redemption that the Exodus is. But through the Old Testament, this figure comes back and back again of labor being a sign of struggle. And often the pains that come upon a woman are terrifying, frightening. I mean, I don't know the ladies here how you felt when you were giving birth, but we, we have all the lights and the care and so on that our modern age gives us. In those days, you didn't. You didn't know how you would survive, and women died in childbirth. And so we have passages like this in Isaiah 26, like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth. So were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed. But we gave birth to wind. What a figure. Think of nine months and nothing but Nothing wind. That, that condemnation of your idolatry. You are devoting yourselves to idols. And the futility of your worship is shown in this figure. You make a lot of noise. You're upset. You're not happy. But it's because you're going to produce nothing. You conceive chaff, Isaiah 33. You give birth to stubble. 
And when God speaks in Isaiah 42, he says, For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. And Why is he doing that? The context tells us. He's coming in judgment on the idolaters. He's coming on in salvation for his faithful people. The birth that is to say, the coming about of either deliverance or judgment. And it's always that way. It's no salvation without judgment. Well, there, there's so many references and, and, and contexts where childbirth and birth pangs are clear about either terror or something very new happening. But there's a unique passage in Isaiah 66, and it's a birth without pangs. Let me read it to you. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in a day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor... She brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her. That you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse and shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. What is this about? Well, in the context, it's about God creating something entirely new. In the prior chapter, Isaiah 65, he says, I'm going to make a new heaven and a new earth. Well, here he's talking about the birth of those people who are going to occupy it. (laughs) And they're going to have an abundance that's unprecedented. So, out of Israel, from the Jews, God promised to bring to life a new man. Here is a birth without labor or pain, immediate, unheard of, unprecedented, achieved without the possibility of failure, because God is bringing it about. This child is a picture of the Gentiles given spiritual birth from the apostolic church's preaching and by the Holy Spirit's life-giving work. The child's mother, the church, will nurse, carry, and caress him. That's what the church is to be, a nursery, a school, a, a fondling, a caring of newborns, encouraging one another in this, in this wonderful privilege that we have. There will be times of mourning for her defections, weaknesses, the indwelling sin that still 
mars joy for a time but the increase of this son's progeny will ever grow meanwhile the enemies of this son will be dealt with by god so this wonderful fulfillment isaiah is saying of the promise made to abraham that in you all the nations of the earth would be blessed is spelled out here in this beautiful figure of a birth without pain that is pain to the person in fact it's joy it's it's the reality of Even the Gentiles now have heard and believed and the Spirit has come on them, as Mike even referred to that passage in Acts 11 this morning. Well, when we come to the New Testament, what do we have? Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And all rests on him. The coming of that one. And so he came And from his youth, his earliest youth, he experienced the vanity, the futility of this life. Family hostile to him, not understanding. Disciples, by and large, not understanding. The Jews persecuting him, following him all the time, harassing him. Christ's sufferings didn't start in Gethsemane. They were all his life long in this this world. It has, is under this curse and groans. Christ groaned with this world. He wept over Jerusalem, following his father's orders and waiting for Lazarus to die. He arrives and has to face his beloved Martha and Mary. Lord, if you'd been here, he was twice. My brother wouldn't have died. He weeps. The agony of childbirth. But he had to go through it. And he did. And in order to prepare his disciples, he used this figure in John 16, right before he was to be arrested. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. What a beautiful figure of the Lord Jesus saying, my death is going to be like a horrific birth. Pangs, sufferings, not only for me but for you. His mother standing at the cross watching this shameful, horrific, awful business. The women, the men, That's what it costs. In fact, Jesus had already said that earlier about what he would suffer in Luke chapter 12 when he said, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how I am in pains, as it were, labor pains, until it is accomplished. Learning his mission to die, to suffer from the Old Testament scriptures every week in the synagogue from his youth until he began his public ministry. Well, because of his labor pains, here we sit, by and large Gentiles who've been brought in to be nursed, to be fed, to be strengthened, to persevere in the midst of whatever it is the Lord sends us in his providence. And so there are labor pains for us, and Paul expresses it so well in his love for the Galatians, but he says it's always good to be made much of 
for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. It's the anguish Christian parents go through for their children. Kids here tonight, I'm glad you're here. It's wonderful to have you kids here. The greatest desire of your parents is that you know the Lord Jesus Christ and love him, and you hate sin. And that you be thankful that you have parents that are going to teach you these things, and in a church that will support your parents in teaching you these things. Because their greatest desire is that you know him, and know him and love him and serve him all your life. I love the prayer that one of the brothers that comes to the Tuesday morning prayer meeting often prays. May this child never know a time when they didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ and love him and serve him. But there's this tension, there's this desire by the parents, there's this desire by the church, the leadership, it should be, to strengthen people. Have Christ formed in you as we would want Christ formed in us who have the responsibility of teaching. So where is our hope in all this? Well, it's in the sure promises of God. He cannot fail. His word will not fail. Not one promise will fail. As Joshua said to the Israelites when he was about to die, not one thing has failed of all that God promised to do. And yet our final hope is not in this life anyway. It's in the coming of Christ. And that's why Peter says, to saints that were also suffering, as he addressed them in 1 Peter, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Folks, we need to have hope in this life. We need to have goals. We need to be working diligently towards them. God-ordained work privileges, duties, etc., and pleasures. But our ultimate hope is in Jesus coming back. It should be. It is in the New Testament. When I was thinking of one direction for this sermon, I read through all the Gospels looking for the, every mention of Christ's return in some way or other. It's incredible. It's everywhere. The goal is the new heaven and the new earth, the return of Christ, the righting of wrongs, the judge of all the earth dealing with the wicked, making that final separation and glorifying himself and all his people. And so as a word of encouragement to us, yes, we live in a world that's in, in birth pangs, but Paul says to the Corinthians, after dealing with the last of their huge problems, namely some didn't believe in the resurrection, and he addresses that as, again, Mike gave us that passage this morning, he says, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So persevere, dear saints. Look up. Keep your eyes on Christ. Ask him to make you more like him. Realize that everything he sends into your life is designed for that purpose. Primarily, oh, there may be secondary reasons. That's the primary reason. Sickness, loss of job, whatever it may be, and all the good things. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 
because our Jesus is coming back. And what a glory it will be. So we can say, as we did when we read the wonderful answer to question 52, what comfort does the return of Christ to judge the living and the dead give you that in all affliction and persecution I may await with head held high the very judge from heaven who has already submitted himself to the judgment of God for me and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but that he shall take me together with all his elect to himself into heavenly joy and glory. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Oh, gracious Father, thank you for this birth that you have designed without pains to us. It is the fact that we can be regenerated by your Spirit, that we can be justified by faith alone, that we can be adopted into your family by faith alone, and that you begin the process of renovating us and making us like Christ by your Holy Spirit. But the pain was with our dear Savior. He bore the labor pains. He suffered the loss. And he did it for the joy that was set before him. Strengthen us, O gracious Father, so that we may put our eyes on you and run the race faithfully, laying aside the weights and the sins which so easily beset us. Run with patience the race set before us. Help us, for Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Mm.